Good afternoon. Well, good evening almost, um, and welcome to the Scottish Parliament. I'm Alison Johnston. I'm presiding officer of the Parliament. Very pleased to, to welcome you to the 2022 Festival of Politics. This year's event celebrates the festival's 18th year of inspiring and informing audiences from every walk of life to enjoy three days of engaging debate in a safe and respectful environment. We are delighted that you can join us today to participate in this In Conversation event with Lem Sissé. Um, and it's brought to you in partnership with Who Cares Scotland. Yes. And are you here? <laughs> Who Cares Scotland? They're here. They're with us in the okay, room. There have been events on during, okay. throughout the day. Um, there's obviously a big opportunity for you to get involved, to put your, your questions and, and comments and thoughts to Lem. Mm -hmm. And if you're keen to share your thoughts with the wider world through social media, the hashtag is FOP2022. Well, I'm absolutely delighted to be joined uh, by our guest, Lem Sissé. Lem Sissé OBE is one of the nation's best-loved poets, but is also a playwright, memorist, performer and broadcaster. And if you Google the name Lem Sissé, all the returning hits will be about him. There is only one Lem Sissé. <laughs> Now, Lem was awarded the MBE for Services to Literature by Her Majesty the Queen in 2014, and in 2021 he was awarded the OBE for Services to Literature and to Charity. He has honorary doctorates from many universities, including the University of Manchester, where he was Chancellor until recently. And Lem was awarded the Penn Pinter Prize in 2019, when his memoir, My Name is Why, reached number one in the Sunday Times bestseller list, and if any of you have read this, you will understand exactly why that is the case. Now, as I've said, there'll be, a, there'll be a, an opportunity for, for the audience to put questions and views to Lem throughout this event. Um, but I'm going to begin by asking Lem... Well, actually, I'm going to begin by asking Lem in the first instance to read from his book. Thank you. Thanks. Um, this is the preface to the book. At 14, I tattooed the initials of what I thought was my name into my hand. The tattoo is still there, but it wasn't my name. It's a reminder that I've been somewhere I should never have been. I was not who I thought I was. The authority knew it, but I didn't. The authority had been writing reports about me from the day I was born. My first footsteps were followed by the click-clack-clack of a typewriter. The boy is walking. My first words were recorded. Click-clack-clack. The boy has learned to talk. Fingers were poised above a typewriter, waiting for whatever happened next. The boy is adapting. Paper zipped from typewriters and into files and the files slipped into folders under the S section of a tall metal filing cabinet for 18 years. This process repeated over and over again, click, clack, clack. Secret meetings were held. The folders were taken out, placed on tables, surrounded by men and women from the authority. Decisions were made, put him here, put him there. Shall we try drugs, try this, try that? After 18 years of experimentation, the authority threw me out. It locked the doors securely behind me and hid those files 
in a data company called the Iron Mountain. So I wrote to the authority and I hand delivered the letter. The reply informed me that I had to write to customer services. I was a, a customer now. So I, I wrote to customer services and customer for services replied to say they were not permitted to release the files. The authority placed me with incapable foster parents. It imprisoned me. It moved me from institution to institution. And yet now, after 18 years, at 18 years old, I had no history, no witnesses, no family. In 2015, following a 30-year campaign to get my records, the chief executive of Wigan Council, Donna Hall, wrote me a letter. She had them. Within a few months, I received four thick folders of documents marked A, B, C and D. <coughs> click, clack, clack, clack. On reading them, I knew. I took the authority to court. How does a government steal a child and then imprison him? How does it, how does it keep it a secret? This story is how. Thank you. I think, um, obviously, your, your story is absolutely extraordinary. And I think what makes it so powerful is, is throughout the actual the evidence, the letters to and from social services um, and others. But I'd be interested to hear your views on what we you know, do you think the system has changed since you experienced it? I'd, I'd begin by saying that family is a set of disputed, a set of disputed, a set of disputes and resolutions between one group of people over a lifetime. So separating, falling out, falling in over a lifetime. And I had no witnesses I had no, at 18 years of age, I had nobody to deny that anything that I was saying was true or untrue. And in not having somebody to argue with, to debate with, to find uh, common ground with, common ground to disagree about, by the way. People used to say to me, they used to say, uh, oh, Lem, if you find your family, families are really difficult, they're not good. I get it. Don't you think we people who are in care understand that more than anybody? That dysfunction is at the heart of all functioning families. I need to say that in context with what I've just written. And, and the last thing in my files, uh, Alison, was, was um, my letter to, to get my files back from when I was 18 years of age. Because when I was 18, it was 1985, and that was the one of the shifts in the Freedom of Information Act. And that Freedom of Information Act meant that we, as the public, could write to the council to get our... And actually, that was, that was championed by a Scot. That was um, David... Small guy, SDP. David Steele, yeah, it was David Steele 
who, who was instrumental at, in, at one point with the, uh, with the Freedom of Information Act that, that meant that councils had to, in England had to open up there. And that was, it was right on the front, that, front of that. And it was the Children's Legal Centre, which is where Who Cares were first based uh, in Islington, where they started. Um, um, it was the Children's Legal Centre who informed, who requested my files in 1985 from Wigan Council, who just did not know what they had looked after for 18 years. And that was me. And, and any of you who have a child will know that there comes a point when you have your child where you're like, how did, what, how did that all become from me? <laughs> that is just incredible. And I was that child, and I was, uh, um, uh, as, as all of our children are, um, uh, I wanted somebody to argue with, because uh, they were the only representatives of parenthood that I'd heard. That's why I searched for my files, and the last thing I found in my files in 2015 was me. So the question is, 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 is it any different now than it is then? Well... Well, fortunately, um, I've been a poet and a writer all of my adult life. Um, when I left the care system at 18, I was articulating some of... I knew something had gone wrong. And like most abused children in some way, you act out in some way to try to translate to people who do not understand the language of which you're uh, trying to share what happened to me. Something wrong happened to me. How do, I, how do I try to translate that to the people who did it? You see, this is the problem with, and we are in Parliament where people speak, you know, ideally without emotion, which makes sense. Because if you're going to get this stuff through, if everybody were, was emotive, it would, they, you wouldn't get the axe through. You know, it, it would muddy the waters. So here I am, a child whose government is my parent, muddying the waters. Muddying the waters, asking the people who represented me to explain themselves, just like Harry Potter did to the teachers in his school. And there's a link to that, which I'll speak about in a little while. But so the question is, is have things changed? And, and I, when I left care, I, Alison, I, I refused to do what I was told. And one of the things that I was told as I started to articulate myself is that maybe I should become a social worker so I should change the system from the inside. Do you know how, how, how Kafka-esque, and I've just been asked to uh, translate, uh, to, to adapt uh, Kafka's metamorphosis... Uh, for Frantic Assembly. Nobody knows that, but now you do. Uh, and that will be, hopefully, in Edinburgh at some point. Frantic Assembly are an incredible theatre company. I shouldn't have said that, but I have. But the point, the point is, is that, is that I, 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 I realised how little imagination it took for a social worker to say to me that I could grow up to be a social worker. How, how that was the closest thing to them to tell me to do that and how that would have been the worst thing for it. And I thought, wow, is this a training ground for future social workers? <laughs> yes, I know. If we just think about it just a little bit, 
Our own children, we might ask them to become astronauts. What do you want to be? We don't know if we've got the money to put them through education. We don't know if we've got the money to the, the, for them to be astronauts. But if they say they want to be astronauts, then they can be astronauts. But for some reason, as a child in care, the options are limited. The job is that you go back into the institution, you become a social worker, as if, as if that wouldn't have any mental effect on you. In as if that wouldn't be triggering. But, uh, sorry, just to answer the question, I'll, I'll bring myself to it. Sorry, Alison, because that sounds like I'm doing a thing that people think that politicians do, but I'm not sure they do. I'm not sure. It's easy to, it's easy to them and us uh, in these situations. However, the point is, is that I decided to be a writer because I knew that there was a different way of being able to relate to my experience, which was not what the institution wanted. And that, and that actually I deserved more than that. And that I had this love of writing. So I'm trying to say to you, the long way I'm putting this is that I have been involved in the, in the care system and in watching it and in critiquing it and in speaking it from an artist's perspective since I was 18. Okay, watching the legislation, you know, commenting mm -hmm. uh, and involved in Who Cares, the Blackening Care Group, the National Association of Young People in Care. But I did it from the from the perspective of an artist, not as a lobbyist who needed to learn to speak the language of the institution that was damaging him, that, that then couldn't use the word love, which mm -hmm. is one of the things that Who Cares has championed in Scotland, which is very proud to see. I wanted love. At the end of the day, that's what I wanted. How do you manage that within this kind of structure? How does that translate? Because love is a series of actions. Okay, equality is essentially about providing an environment for love to blossom. So it is political. So, so, so the question is, 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 has it changed between now and then? Well, let me share something with you. Like, there is no child, not one single child in the entire care system who will benefit if I say it's terrible, it's much worse than it was before, or who will benefit if I say, yes, it is much better than it was before. There is no, there is no child in care right today that will benefit from that. That's the first thing to say, to answer the question. The second thing to say to answer the question is that it is, it is better by a, a hundred, you know, by, by a million miles. I mean, we're on the way. We're on the way. We're just at the beginning, but we're on the way. My, well, I'll talk about what my role is, what I believe my role to be. It's not really connected to changing the system at all. I'm more interested in getting the public's opinion on children in care to change for them to feel more responsible towards it, because then the politicians will understand how important it is because it's important to their community. If there's prejudice in the wider public, then that prejudice emanates in, in, in our, our, our um, corridors of power. It just reflects it. It's not, I'm not saying it, it, it makes it worse, I'm just saying it reflects it. So I want, I want to change opinion out there, and I think I've done a, quite a bit in that area. Um, so my answer is, just one small answer, answer. It's, it's, it's this, it's that, and it's happened for, ever since I left care, it's if a child uh, or a young person or an adult, let's do adults, let's do adults. If an adult fall, come, falls through a window or jumps and, and breaks their leg on the main street, I go over and I see that adult and I think something has to be done about that. The best of us 
of whoever we are. We were talking about the best of us on the, on the buzz, weren't we? You were saying on the buzz and how everybody was talking to these two Geordie women. The best of us will give the best to that person who's fallen from the window and broken the legs on the high street. However, if we liken this to kids in care, this is tangentially linked to what you're saying. It's not directly linked to what you're saying, but I want to put it out there. I will point at the child and say, or point at the person and say, there's a person who has broke the leg, let's call the ambulance, and let's just make sure this does not happen again. There'll be a whole lot of people around that person saying to me, Lem, can't you see there are people walking here? There are people whose legs are fine everywhere. They've not fallen through the window, Lem. They're fine. Why are you pointing at the person who's fallen through the window and got a sore leg? Do you understand what I'm saying? What I'm saying is that when, when you see a child in care who's been damaged, there's something wrong with saying, well, the rest of the care system's doing really well then. It's much better than it was before. It's like, what? How inhumane do you have to be to reach for that? So the reflection of whether the system's working or not is how well that child is looked after, period. You say, you say in your book that when you, well, you speak about friends of yours who received their boxes. Um, you, you say one of them burnt their oh, notes. Oh yes, the files, yeah. Uh, yeah, burnt, burnt their files yeah. and she didn't a, know. another has yeah. still been unable to even look at them. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. how did you feel when you got A, B, C and D? Mm. I mean, it must have been pretty nerve-wracking. 2015, lots of therapy. You see, one of the things that, 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 that be, being an artist gave me was a career and, and, and also in that career gave me a certain amount of uh, introspection as an artist, actually. It's one of the things that artists do. do, do. Mm -hmm. um, selfishness, you can call it. <laughs> but, but introspection is one of, one of the things. And, and, and so, some of that introspection led me to realise that I needed help. You know, I needed help. And, um, and so I... I um, from the age of around 30, because all of the relationships that I had, firstly, it was everybody else's fault when anything went wrong in relationships. It was always somebody else's, always her fault. And friendships as well, actually, uh, uh, and stuff. And, and so I needed, to th I, I, got, I got into therapy at, in my 30s. Uh, and that's really helped me, mm -hmm. like really profoundly helped me. And I, I you know, I, th I do think that, the effect of you being a child in care for 18 years is not when you're in care. So all the evaluation forms in the world that you tick mm -hmm. um, won't work because your childhood is manifested in your adult life. So how old were you when you got the boxes? 2015. I was I was um, 55 now. That was seven years ago. So it was I was 40, uh, 48. Okay. And did you sit and systematically work through them? There are a lot of people getting the files back at the moment, Alison. And um, I think there is, an, there is a social enterprise waiting to happen of a therapist, um, a hill walker and a cook. Uh, all who have training and they have a house in the Highlands. Actually, there's one of these in Ireland for prisoners, actually, for people who were in, wrongfully imprisoned. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's a house and they go to that house and they get their files out and these, and they can invite two of their own friends that they want to be there and they stay for a few days and they go through the files and then they go for a walk up a hill and 
you know, they watch the sunset and they come back and then they cook a meal and, you know, talk a little bit about something else. Then the next day they sit down in the morning and there's a fire going and they open the files. That's care. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, so there's a social enterprise waiting to happen that is that. But no, uh, most of us, it, it, it's, uh, I'm speaking with my friend Jenny Fagan, one of the great writers from here in Scotland, and I know your uh, Prime Minister, uh, Nicola Sturgeon. First Minister. First Minister, sorry, mm -hmm. English. But, but um, the First Minister as a fan of Jenny's, and mm -hmm. Jenny has her files right now, and without because she's writing her mem memoir, but without going into, speaking of Jenny, um, that's got to be an incredible book. Mm -hmm. Wow, <laughs> I've got it. <laughs> I mean, here at the festival today, there's been a, a reading and a panel discussion with our partners, the National Theatre of Scotland, yeah. all about care experience, young people and adults. And I think one of the things that's come across there yeah, I suppose the question that we continue to ask ourselves is how we can imbue a care system with, with love and compassion. And you speak about that missing word. And I think it's fair to say that when we debated this issue in the in the chamber in Parliament, it's probably fair to say that the word love is not often spoken yeah, in this yeah. Parliament. And that's probably quite remarkable, isn't it, when you think about the drivers for people to get into politics in the first place? Yeah. Because it surely must come from that place, else, you, you know, why are you here? There's a lot of dedicated, um, loving pe people yeah, in here but we who are, love their communities, and yeah, that's why they're here, yeah. yeah but we are yeah. sometimes abashed about that, and I think, you know, my own experience, I was a corporate parent when on the City of Edinburgh Council, and right. we'd meet with, um, you know, young people who were in our care, and there's a real, you know, we should be treating care experienced, care, young people in our care as we would our own our own children and, and then you read this and I think you know the way this book starts I mean there's nothing really like it isn't it you don't often turn over and on page two um I've not got my glasses on forgive me I've forgotten them today these? well I, I think I'll okay. manage but it's, it's been I'm the same I've been, I've been offered several pairs today actually <laughs> actually once it wasn't once at a party conference I had to stand up and read an emergency motion wearing a colleague's glasses <laughs> so you'd think I would have learned by now but um, yeah, maybe maybe after this term I'll have that thing around my neck. Yeah. But I, I, you know, very, I hereby certify that Lem Sissi is free from infectious disease. Yeah. I mean that's that, that that's yeah. quite an opening to. I mean I was sort of, yeah. You're you're just drawn in, into this by the sheer. It's just so. Well, it, it it's just so sort of. There's just such a lack of emotion there. Yeah, it, yeah, they're fascinating documents. It says that there as well, satisfactory buttocks. Well, it, says, it says buttocks satisfactory. And I, I thought, I thought for ages, I thought, oh, that's just racism of some sort. Of some sort. I didn't know what it was. I thought of you know Sarah Bartman, you know, you know the the, the, the you know thought I thought of you know that. And then a nurse came to me and said, a nurse she must have been about seventy, an ex nurse, and she said, oh no, that's what we did. To, I think it was checking for rickets or something. It was a very particular thing. Mm -hmm. So, so you have to decode everything mm -hmm. that's in the files, you know, because and it's it's really easy for me. It was really easy for me to think that satisfactory buttocks was a a sort of put down, uh, an extra thing done because of my race, but actually it wasn't. I, you know, I've I've just helped. Oh, 
I've just helped a, a man find his family. And his, his um, you can see it on my Twitter, two weeks ago, he's, he's 50 years of age, and his, his adoptive mum was Nancy, strange letter, then D, and then Stuart, S-T-E-W-A-R-T. -E Nancy, strange squiggle that looks like an ampersand, like an and, mm -hmm. and then a D, Stuart. And I, and I said I'm, I'd help him find this, because I, I like doing this, because it's what I do. It's what I do. I can look at a piece of paper, see a word, and think, what is that, and do the research. Satisfactory buttocks. Go back to the 1960s. Hear a nurse tell me, no limb, and then this is what that meant. Ah, enlightened. Told, it gives you a, 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 an image of the time. Nancy E. D. Stewart, something D. Stewart. It looked like a strange letter. So I put it on my Twitter. You can see it from about two weeks ago. <laughs> what is this? And then somebody looks at it and they said, it's copper plate writing limits, the old fashioned writing. And that is an E. So then we start with Nancy E.D. Stewart, and then we find Nancy Elizabeth, because we knew, know she's from Scotland, from the Highlands, Elizabeth Donnell or Durig Stewart. And then within a week and a half, we find her, we find her surviving son, we find her brothers and sisters, she died when she was 49, and her husband died in 2007. Um, files are really potent things. They're full of potency and you felt it, you feel it reading them. And anybody who reads the book feels it reading them, you know. Um, but, uh, yeah, we've, we found her and he's, he's, he's yet to go up. He's, got, he's gone on holiday with his own children for a couple of weeks. He's a photographer for Vogue, an adopted guy. The reason that I know him is because he told me that once. He lives nearby. Uh, two weeks ago, I did a, a photo shoot at The Observer. This is all linked, uh, Alison, but for The Observer, which was a f Observer newspaper, it was for the New Review, and it was a fostered, adopted and orphaned children who were adults, mm -hmm. of which he was one, and I got him an invite to come to it. And Stuart Lee, who's performing here, he was in care as well. People think adopted people weren't in care. It's not true. It's a successful mm -hmm. transaction quite often, you know, between the social services, the the home, the mother and baby home often, and the uh, adopting parents, etc. Um, they were in care. Uh, and I brought them all together for a photo shoot, which was on the front page of the new review about two and a half, three weeks ago, I'm proud to say. Um, uh, I've lost myself. I've just walked nope, myself up a that's, tunnel. That's absolutely grand. We're, we're, we're here to, to, to hear from you. Um, I, I'd just be really interested to know if anyone would like to, to put a question to them. Yes, please. I was just about oh, we'll get you a microphone. Hang on a second, just to make sure everyone can hear. Just a long second here. Do you remember when glasses used to be really big? Certainly, it's a Michael McIntyre. Oh, do you remember when? Uh, <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take no, it. No, I'm joking. No, no, I'm joking. We can we can have a note there. No, I'll take I'm it. Joking. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, please. No. Yes. Well, I hope you can hear me. It was. I was very. Um, as I hope it's not off topic too much, but it's when you're talking about deserving better when you're talking about being a writer from a young age. And I just wondered at that age, what set that fire off of it and what kind of responses you had to your writing at a young age? That's a really good question, thank you. 
Um, because that is, that, that is to say that any parent knows that like you want your child to be well I think you want your child to ta- try everything and then decide what it, and then find what find that thing that they're suddenly really into and it could be mechanics it could be you know make, mending cars it could be engineering it could be uh, it could be playing football it could be uh, but it, no, football's got such a lobby on young people's hearts I don't mean football but it, it could be uh, um, making cordials it could be science chemistry it could be hairdressing you know, you want somebody to feel, and hairdressing is the most creative thing that happens on the high street, transforms a person from the inside and the outside, um, but, but much more creative than, than, than the people who say that they're creatives. Um, but but, but um, what was the question? <laughs> no, I know I've got the answer. So the, the idea is, is, that, is, that, is that your child can do, you know, you take your child swimming, you know, and they might be an Olympic swimmer, they might just, you, but it's not that they go, you want, you just want them to catch on to something that they're like, I love this. And you see that light in them. You're like, oh, I can see that she's reacting in a way to this thing that she's doing, which I've not seen before. And you feel the tendrils of her personality sort of like start to shape around this activity. And then she becomes... This, this person, you, you must, as a parent, you must get, look at the child and think, I can see them in years to come. There's something about you know, what they've done which is sort of magical. That's, uh, and then what we say is, oh, he's very talented at doing drawings. I remember you when you were a little kid, you used to go, oh, you're miles away with yourself. You always kept your pieces of paper in the blah, 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 whatever. The point is, is that, 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 that you will sit outside of the swimming pool at four o'clock in the morning or whenever they've got to do their swimming or the football pitch or the this, that, or the other, or the, you know. Um, just thinking, I cannot wait to get away from here. Please, God, let this be their talent all the time I'm putting in. And then they'll come back one day and just cry, I don't like it anymore, you know what I mean? <laughs> and you're like, okay, next, you know. So I'm lucky, aren't I? Because somehow, somewhere, I got that thing where I just knew. And there was no family around me to encourage me. And believe me, the children's homes and the, did not encourage me. Like, they did the opposite. Okay, I, I can give you instances where that's the case. But let me give you one instance that proves that that's the case. Simply. Um, when I was 18 and I left the children's homes, I didn't know anybody who knew me for longer than a year. Okay, so if you're going to set me up in a system where my entire childhood leaves me at 18 years of age, where I don't know anybody who's known me for longer than a year, then let's not talk about you being positive about my talent. Does this make sense? So, so I'm talking about care here. Um, and this is the way I was when I was in care as well. I was like, I'm not having it that you as a social worker are going to say to me, no, Len, we did you well because we took you training once. You know, and your foster parents did love you once, etc., etc. No, no, that's not good enough. There was no through line. And like I say, when I left care at 18 years of age, I didn't know anybody who knew me for longer than a year, and I defined knowing me as having me at their house to eat food more than twice. Right? Anybody. So... The one thing that was clear about the children's homes is that nothing stayed the same ever. That children moved in and out, staff changed every four hours. That if you said anything was wrong, they'd say, oh, it's not my fault, it's them up there. 
the responsibility was always passed. The book stopped with nobody. So, and I'm not angry. And I'm not bitter, because bitterness rots the vessel that carries it. And anger, if it's not used, is a very poisonous. I've been angry. I know anger. Um, so I'm lucky that I found the thing that I, I love. And, and somebody said this to me the other day at a gig. He said, you had nothing to lose, did you, Lem? You had nothing to lose. Like, why? the reason I found my family and I've done all the things that I've done is that I have nothing to lose. No, there was no family who was going to be ashamed of me outing my story. There's nobody there. I wasn't letting anybody down. Other hands? Other questions? Yes. I've got a big link to Scotland, by the way, but go on. My question is, I suppose, similar in a way, but from a different angle, in that you've done very well for yourself. It's not been easy, yeah. but you've come good. Um, or oh, the way people would say, yeah. he's done well, he's come good. Yeah, yeah, thank you. So easily you might not have. Uh, in recent years, I've sort of been studying the works of Gabo Mate, who looks at addiction and... Yeah. Everything that's, as you say, everything stems from the childhood and all the things that people look at being the problem often are the solution um, to the problem, but the problem stems from the childhood. Um, and so when they see addiction, um, alcoholism, mm. drug abuse, mm. they see that's a problem. It's not, it's that person's way of coping. Whereas you use poetry and writing, which is a positive a positive addiction, if you like. Um, and you said earlier you, you felt you wanted somebody to argue with, to to dispute with. Yeah. Did you feel, you, you mentioned just, just now about anger, was there a time that you could easily have gone down a very different route? or is, Was there a time I could have gone down a very different route? The answer to that one syllable is yes. Second thing to say to you is, I'm like sober, eight years sober now. Stopping, stopping drinking was one of the most important things of my adult life. Uh, I have the, the, the you know, <laughs> I'll put the glasses on now. But uh, I have the slit wrist from, from my 14 years of age. I don't really talk about that a lot of gigs. I, I'm, it's in here somewhere. But, but uh, uh, 14 years of age I was, and the mark is still there. So, you know, I have the tattoos on the back of my hand um, that turn into scabs, and I scratch them off, and the... The one there, you know, they're more obvious. They're all on the left arm. It's all self-harm. It was all Indian ink and a pen. Um, so uh, I, I'll tell you something. There is nothing more dangerous than what people perceive as a success or acceptance if you're not working through your stuff. You know, half the reason, half of the reason I won't, I don't want to totally go into it, but half of the reason that you know people disappear. The reason is the, 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 what happens in the care system and the abuse inside families, it manifests in your adult life. Okay, so, so, and by the way, by the freaking way, two things. One, the child who steals from shops, who is inappropriate, who swears, who has relationships that they should not have, illegal ones even, who, you know, who, who uh, drinks underage. Uh, it's the majority of children who do those things uh, and they're not children in care, they're your children. 
But when your child has got an, a, a boyfriend who's over 18 or who is drinking alcohol or who is smoking, you don't call the police. You, you sit down with your partner, with yourself, with whatever, and you're like, how the hell do we get through this? Like, how, how, firstly, how did this happen? And then you're like, no, that's, it's happened. How do we get through it? You know, what's the punishment regime? What's the life? We punish too much. Is this a da 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 You know, and you improvise something, you don't even know if it's going to work. And you don't even know whether you're going to have a nervous breakdown, but you can't afford to because you've got to stay the steady ship because this little shit is doing X, Y, and Z, which is, you know... And you make up something and you try it. If it happens to a kid in care, they're imprisoned or the police are called. Okay, that, that is a fact. That's what's happening. That's what happens now. And that is criminalization. It's, it's saying to that child, if you test our boundaries, there's no, there's no, uh, there's no line. There's no, sorry, there's no gray area. We'll get the police. And, and, and that's where care stops. And that's where the institution, it's all about insurance, by the way. This is really interesting. The effect of, for me, the effect of insurance on the care system. However, um, your question, just tell me about it again, just share it with me. My question was, after sort of explaining in the background of my question, was asking, was there a chance that, that you wouldn't have gone up? Yeah, okay, fine, thanks. So, yeah, I was say, I, what I was trying to say is that uh, the best thing that happened to me in many ways, I think, is, is I had therapy, still do have it, um, because it was a point of being able to register the emotional charges that were happening on me relative to success because believe me if you're getting an MBE you're reminded that you have no family you're reminded of what you've not got every step of the way when I became Chancellor of the University of Manchester there's no family member in the audience there's nobody there who who was there before no who had that investment in me nobody nobody so every time I had some success whether it was my first book at 21 first double page in the Guardian it, it mattered little to me, to be honest. I, I can genuinely say that. And success has always been, to me, if I can look in the mirror and know that I'm okay. <laughs> and I know that sounds you know, weird. You can look at me, you can go, Chancellor of this, that and the other, and actually I can look at some of the things I've done. And it's just nuts. It's actually quite nuts. Because it doesn't resonate with me. It actually, on an emotional level, it does not resonate. It's really hard to stick it on. It's the strangest thing. That's not humility and it's not faux humility. You understand what I mean? I know that success is whether I'm doing okay in myself or not. Whether I can look in the mirror and see myself rather than think of what he's not got. Because in society you're consistently reminded of what people have because they pretend it's better. That the familial structure, that there, there is this halcyon familial structure which is which is perfect. It's not. None of it is. Imperfection is the beauty of families. Dysfunction is the heart of all functioning families. And yet we spend half of our life trying to convince each other that ours is okay. It not being okay is okay. And that's why people hate kids in care, because we are living walking proof that things can fall apart. And we're hated for that. And that's why people hate social workers. Because they actually show the line, they draw the line, they say no. And actually, they, people can't realise that social workers are the ones who save families. Like, on the whole, 
That's what they do. They keep families together, but nobody's going to say, oh, they kept my family together. Because there is a hypocrisy around family that it is that there, that is some some form of perfection, whereas the imperfection of family is in the imperfections. I believe. Who else would like to put a question to Lem? One here, and then and over here too. These are long answers, aren't Shall, they? So let's roll these two together. We'll take this question and this okay. question. We'll put them both to you, okay. Lem. Thanks. Okay. Yeah. Um, thank you. So I found. Your answer to the question about how the how the social system have changed very interesting because you answered it from an artist perspective. Yes, yeah. And also right. you spoke a, a little bit about how how the expectation from social from the social system was that you become a social worker as well. So I was wondering how how you find navigating through the different identities you have um, against the expectations and maybe the stereotype as well. Um, particularly as an artist, maybe, um, if you found that sometimes maybe taking away something from you or not, or, or, or I don't know how to put it, like how, how do you navigate through those, those expectations and those expected answers and, and maybe stereotypes that... Um, I've learned. Yeah. We'll, t we'll take maybe another question well, yeah. too. Yeah. yeah. Okay. okay. Well, I, I think I think Lem can manage. Okay, do carry on. Yeah. Uh, my question is: uh, you, Did you meet your mother, and how did you feel about it? And do you feel that she's your family? And do you know who your father is? Yes, this is a great question. I'll answer this one first. Um, I, I, there's, a, there's only one of me, you know what I mean? I've got one identity, that's it. It's the same identity as I had as a kid. I thought my name was Norman as a child. Norman Mark Greenwood, uh, and then I found out my name when I was 15, 16 was Lem Sisse. I changed it properly back to Lem Sisse. I call myself Lem Sisse from the age of 17. Uh, it's the name on my birth certificate, Lem Sisse. It's always been Lem Sisse on my birth certificate. It should never have been Norman Mark Greenwood. The person who called me Norman was the social worker who stole me literally from my mother and gave me to foster parents. Foster parents wanted to call me Mark after Mark in the Bible. So my name was Norman Mark Greenwood, and that's all I knew about it. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And then, because that was my name, why would I not love it? And then somebody, when I was, a few weeks ago, actually, was doing a gig, she said, oh, yeah, so Lem, what's the difference? Did you leave Norman behind when you became Lem Sisse? I'm like, I'm the same guy. Jeez Louise, somebody else changed my name. You know what I mean? I was always, that's the thing that irritated people about me most of all, is that he's the same guy. You know, somebody said to me, why did your foster parents do what they did? And believe me, I asked myself the same question. Um, but it's because I had this light. This light when I was a kid. And any room that I went into. And I haven't got it anymore. And performatively, possibly. But I just, poof, was like, right, everybody, now. Get to the wall, tell me who you are, where you from, why? <laughs> whatever, 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 whatever. You know, I was, the, I was that kid, you know. And now I see that in those kids, in kids... Uh, so it's one or so. Uh, it doesn't make you a better person that you're that person. That it's no, I'm no better than my more introverted brother. Not a better, but 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 I shouldn't have been punished for it. You see, that was the cruel thing. So uh, and I've proved all of this. It's not. Uh, so I'm the same person, and that's what I manage through. So when people say to me, "Yeah, but what are you, Lem?" I spent years going, "Oh gosh, I'm, I'm English." 
Like, I'm Ethiopian. I'm black. I'm, oh, you're black, are you? It's like, no, I'm all of those things. I'm a northerner from the north of England. I live in London. I'm Ethiopian. I am British. I am a man. I'm a collection of molecules. I, I don't know what I am because I'm always looking out, etc., etc. I'm all of those things. So you're asking me, you know, how do I manage the identities? I don't. How do I manage my identity? That's what it, my, you know, who I am. And that's the same as all of us. Is that okay? And I'm an artist as well. And I'm a creative. And that's where I roll. That's where I roll. That's like, my bottom line is, I have a cave. And in that cave, I put things on walls. And if nobody sees it, I don't care, because that's what I do. You see? And I, I you know, I've, I've, got two, I've got time for two sets of people. Uh, people who've been in care, artists, period. They're the ones who, I, you know what I mean? No, no, I don't mean they're artists, I mean artists, you know what I mean? Creatives. Uh, but but I'll, I'll spend time with anybody. <laughs> and here's the thing, I don't believe that creativity is the monopoly of artists. Okay, creativity is in everybody and like, you know. Yes, and the answer to that question is, I found my mum when I was 21. Um, if you've only got a phone in, just Google Lemsisay's mum. And, and who do you think she saw when I found her? Like, you know, when I found her. She works for the United Nations. Yeah, I read that, but have you met her? Have you got a relationship with her? When I found my mum, I was 21 years of age, and I flew over to meet her in Ethiopia. I took my book, which was dedicated to her. Um, I, I, the, she didn't see me, I realised. I was 21 when I saw her. Uh, it took me just three years to find her. It's not actually that difficult to find parents for anybody who's looking. Um, it's difficult emotionally. People are like, I've been searching for my parents for 40 years! 40 years! You've written one letter. <laughs> in other words the difficulty is the emotional journey that's the difficulty so um, I found my mum when I was 21 uh, I was a car crash like most of us were when we were 21s but I mean anyway I found her when I was 21 but who did I look like when she looked at me when I found her when I knocked on her door I looked like the last time she saw my father which is when I was conceived yeah so then you realise it's not my story, it's her story. And then you have to look at how women were treated in the 1960s in this country if they were pregnant and without a husband in England. And then you have to think about the mother and baby homes of the 1960s that my mother was put into when she came to this England for a short period of time with no intention of staying here. And then you have to think, hold on a minute, his mother could afford to fly to England to study at college in Bracknell where I got a photograph from her when she was exactly the same age I was when I saw that photo, which was 21. And I thought, my God, she's beautiful. And then I thought, oh my God, I've just thought of my mum as beautiful and I'm 21 <laughs> and she's 21 when I see her. So the reason I'm saying all of these things is that it's complicated and family is complicated. But when I found my mum, I realised that I was the most traumatic thing that happened to her on that bridge between childhood and adulthood. When she was put in that mother and baby home and she said to that social worker, I do not want him adopted, I will not sign the adoption papers. <coughs> the social worker gave me to foster parents, said, treat this as an adoption, he's yours forever, but you've got to call him Norman. Uh, and he didn't allow my mother 
to have me back. And I have letters of my mother pleading for me back from him. Okay, so I know that I was the most traumatic thing that happened to her at 21 years of age. When I met her when I was 21, it meant that she was 42. My mother went back to Ethiopia, tried to get me back, couldn't get me back, tried many times to get me back, couldn't get me back. He wouldn't tell her who the social worker was, uh, sorry, where, who the foster parents were, were, and he called me Lem when he wrote back to her, after having already called me Norman, which showed me the first lie there, in evidence, on the piece of paper, if you looked for it. If you look for it. Also in that letter, my mum said she wanted my second name to be Gade, not Sisse. I had no idea what that meant at 21. Still got the letter to this day. It's published in this book. I looked like my father the last time I saw the mum, my mother, and I looked like the last time that she was conceived, that, that, that she saw him, which is when I was conceived. Why is my name Why? My name was Why before my mum had the traumatic uh, action of having me stolen from her. Why did she say in that letter that she wanted my second name to be Gide, not Sisse? Took me till I was 40 years of age to realize, my God, because it took, took her 10 years to tell me my father's name. And I still don't blame her. My God, she, in Ethiopia, like in a lot of parts of the world, your second name, like Russia, is your father's first name. Gide must have been my father's first name. Took me another five years to realise that Lemen means the question why. Why would my mother call me why? So what I'm trying to say, like I said about the word at the beginning of this, Nancy E. Stewart, um, about the actual words, the buttocks, satisfactory, you've got to analyse the language of these letters and they will tell you so much of the story. My mother was writing to a social worker whose name was Norman. He'd named me after himself. He gave me to the foster parents and said his name's Norman. That's the one thing you have to call him. So all these people were tattooing me with their own stuff, their own mess. And that includes my own family members. The problem, there's a lot of problems in that book. <laughs> oh, we know about the Kindle story. It's all over. You know, the thing, the thing about Kindle is the problem with my book on Kindle, I don't think it's as bad as it was at the beginning, is that that is why... My book hasn't got five stars on, uh, uh, on, on Amazon. Um, it's because when it first came out, it was unreadable on Kindle. And that, that really hurt me. Um, I mean, it's not hurt the book. The book's done... Well, I just found out yesterday, if you put it on your phone, Kindle on the phone, you can actually... Um, get Enlarge it? Oh, OK. okay. Thanks. Thank you. It's a great question, though, about Thank my mum and dad. Do you have a question here? OK, thank you. Thank oh, you. Thanks for Question that. here, and then also um, yeah, the rows four and then two. Shall yeah. We? So I'd like to ask you about forgiveness. Forgiveness. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you believe in it? Do I? Do you Shit want not. to? No, not would you recommend? Would you recommend that to anybody going through adversity? Because there was a wonderful woman called Maria Marina, who runs a thing called the Forgiveness Project. It's an incredible project. Incredible.
Um, and uh, yeah, she's got a book coming out soon. It's going to be an amazing book. Um, and of people who forgive from everywhere, from uh, East, Eastern Europe and Northern Ireland and, you know, war-torn places, but also forgiveness for, for all kinds of things. I forgave my foster mother. Um, I forgave her f fully. And I went to see her to forgive her, forgive my foster parents. See, the, the narrative is, is that there's a poor, poor African child, you know, and that's all we do in Africa is we chase planes, little children, take me with you. Um, uh, that's, that's the easy narrative to believe. And you've got to ask yourself when you do go to Africa, which some of you may or may not have done, if you're ever asked to go to a children's home and the children come out dancing at that children's home and you take photographs and you bring them back with you, you've got to ask yourself, what is that about? Would that be okay if that was in England? And actually, take a look at the children's faces, like, properly. Once you, once you take off this, this cloak of stuff that you've been given since you were born, me included, and take a look at those dancing children, you'll see that they're not happy. You can actually see it in their faces. And you'll see that smile. The smile is just keeping going. That's just not real. They do this for the visitors. So there's a certain training that goes on for that to happen. So, I forgot what I was saying. God, what was the question? It was forgiveness. Forgiveness, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, so sorry, all of that led to my foster parents believing that God was telling them to save this African child. And that fed a Christian narrative. I'm not against Christianity, you know, but fed a narrative which could not admit that it was wrong could not admit that it got it wrong, that this was a child. Uh, um, and that, you know, that it wasn't the devil that was inside of this child. It was adolescence. And they were not dealing with the devil. They were dealing with their own incredible, incredible naivety. So, so the point is, they're totally forgiven. I mean... Properly, I went to see my foster mum, uh, sat her down. Uh, she brought all of her family as some form of protection, uh, but they, they didn't house it as that. And I just said, I forgive you totally, and from the bottom of my heart. And after doing that, with my Auntie Ruth, um, it was on Buckingham Palace Road, they all got up, they'd, they'd set this up and took me into the church where my Uncle Greg was giving a sermon. And I had to stand there with them, knowing that they did this to me when I was a child. This is what I was trained and brought up in. The first time I'd seen her in 25 whatever years. Um, and she said to me, my foster mum said to me, she said, um, and this is all the English side of the family, by the way, not the Scottish side, it's just her side was, this, her, her, her father was the Scot, Duncan Munro from Loch Inver. Um, she said, uh, they took me into the church, and I forgot what I was saying now, but they took me to the church, and I, I had to sing with this clappy, happy, clappy Christianity thing going on. Uh, oh, yes, yeah, she said to me, do you know, my mother treated me terribly. You know, my mother, my mother was like that to me. You know, she said I was, you know, she was, she was sharing the fact that she was a victim as well. And I said to her, don't you think I know that? 
Well, you went back to the family to write a narrative of how I was the ungrateful child who decided at 12 years of age that I didn't want to be with anybody, that it, who'd spent the rest of his life wondering why not one member of the family ever, ever call me. Auntie, uncles, grandmas, cousins, church, town, everybody. The whole reason that you have birthdays and Christmases with your family, with your children, is to say, you are here now. This is a memory that we're making. The worst thing that you would do is to cut them off from all of that. No, I'm talking about all of it. So I have had all of that time, and it's in the book, to think about why you did this to me. And I, then I remembered your postnatal, depre uh, your postnatal depression, your depression. And then it, you were a twin sister. My auntie, your twin sister, was in a mental institution. You felt guilty about... That's why you used to talk about your mum hating you when I was a kid. Grandma doesn't like mum. Mum's told us about that. So I worked out in my adult life what, why she did what she did to me. She found love difficult to give but she found it even more difficult to receive. You see, and all I did was want, want love. I think I'm very conscious of time, so yeah. we'll take a question in the fourth row and in the second row, we'll take those both together. Fully forgiven. Fully forgiven. Yeah, thank you. Um, it kind of leads on from the previous question, basically, but more in, in relationship with Wigan Council itself. Like, yeah. how, how is there a relationship and the forgiveness element on the council? I know yeah. uh, Donna Hall. Yeah. Uh, so Donna Hall lives in Scotland, by the way. Uh, she's just a wonderful human being. Um, now she gave it up. She's just got out. She said, we like, sent me an email the other day because I invited her to that photo shoot. She said, because she was adopted. Mm -hmm. Amazing, I just found this all, all out. Uh, so, yeah, I did take the council to court. So I wanted them to structurally be answerable for what it is that they did to me. I wanted answers to the question on all levels, and one of them was financial. So I wanted them to, to financially pay for what it is that they did to me, which was steal me from my parents, imprison me as a child. You see, me talking about this is all one thing, but I wanted it proved. So I wanted it proved legally so that they could be answerable legally for what they did. Because what they did to me was based on legals. It's based on insurance, etc., etc. A lot of their habits, their institutionalised habits, were based on legals. They didn't know that, but they, they were. I did. Okay? So, so I wanted them to be answerable on that level as well. So that they had some understanding of the levels of which they were compounded. To, to do the bad things to me that they did. Um, and uh, yeah, took them to court. And then when, I, when we settled out of court outside of mediation, so it's public record, what, how much I got and what it was for, I received a, a, a letter of apology for what they did uh, to me. And, um, and then of that same year, I did a Christmas dinner, which, which is a thing that I did, which you do in Scotland as well now, um, for care leavers in Wigan, working with the head of children's services there. So this is not a them and us situation. It's not so black and white. It's very easy to other uh, social workers uh, who I think should be the highest paid civil servants, sorry, because they're working with our most important asset, the child in, the child in care, the next generation. By the way, most kids in care, they don't talk about it. They go away, they have children, 
they struggle with their stuff they don't go to their own past they don't visit it they get on that's most that's most you know what I mean most of them aren't banging on on stage and blah, blah. most of them are just getting on carrying the stuff that they've got with them pushing it down hoping it'll never come up dealing with it that's most you know most aren't in prisons there is a a disproportionate amount who are in addicts who are on the streets who are street workers etc etc a disproportionate amount but most are getting on and that's amazing and i think our final question here in the second row we'll just get a microphone to you thanks can I just say I've really enjoyed this, Alison? Thanks for allowing me to, uh, to, to, to build on my answers to such a level. I, I've really enjoyed it too. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. It's actually really nice for me to be able to let people, you know, well, <laughs> yeah, just, just, just to speak. I know who I'm with, by yeah, the way, folks. No, I do I'm, know the, the level yeah, of just, just, that Alison is. No, just to speak at length because, you know, your audience are, are wrapped, unsurprisingly, thanks. I think, and we'd willingly sit here all evening, but I know you have other things to Thank do you. but we'll take this question it's a question about advocacy really you know because you've obviously found your own voice through yeah. your writing yeah you've clearly gone through a, a long process of trying to understand what happened in your past yeah it's a question really about kids that are actually in care at the moment no. yeah because they don't really have advocates yeah like i mean just as a stat of throw on a stat there's fifteen thousand kids in care in scotland yeah only 2% of those have advocates. Mm. So who's actually speaking on their behalf? And what do you think needs to change? Because there is, a, there is an effort being made in Scotland through there the is. promise to try and introduce care into the care system. If that fails, that's actually failing officially all that generation of kids that are going through that at the moment. Um. You've got a really exciting time in Scotland regarding the child in care at the moment. Um, I'm not necessarily, uh, it's really interesting, isn't it? Like, what is an advocate and, yeah. and, and why weren't they there before? How come there's suddenly lots of advocates now? You know, it's, it's, it, it's an interesting thing. But I like this advocacy thing, though, actually, because it's the wider community taking responsibility for the child in care. And I'm, I'm, I'm really interested yeah. in, the, in that and in cultivating that, um, in cultivating that. And I think that the Independent Review for Children's Social Care in England, the McAllister Report, actually talks of this advocacy being really important. Talks about also kinship care being very important. And I think that in Scotland and Northern Ireland, especially, and Wales, kinship care is actually a thing that happens anyway in families. And historically, it's something that's always happened in families. And we need to sort of bring that back a bit more so that we can... Uh, so that that becomes a resource yeah. uh, within community. I've got to say, our society is not working in that, you know, if I look at the high streets and the way things are divvied up, you know, that's globalisation actually wants us not to kinship care, you know, workers against. Actually, that's a whole other general thing that I said that is not no use to anybody. Um, but I like the idea that, of kinship care, and I think that's in one of in the report that came out um that you yeah, did for three yeah. years here england benefited from your three years england did one year uh, as a review and has more children in care 
but I think it couldn't have done that had you not done the three years. You see, so I I do think it worked in England as as well as it worked in Scotland, but it worked in England because of seeing what happened in Scotland and being able to take the best of that. Um, Three years is a very long time, but to hear, you know, your first minister, (laughs) you know, to hear in England your first minister talk of kids in care in the way that she did is extraordinary. Because we need our politicians, who are our politicians, but there's a lot of prejudice in our community against kids in care. We need our politicians to aspire. That's all we need as kids in care is for people to aspire to us. People didn't aspire for me. You know, it's like, are you going to be an astronaut? You know, that's a great example of that aspiration. Like, why should a child in care not feel like that? Why should the person who's looking after them not be saying, what do you want to be? You know, um, et cetera, et cetera. So... And I need to say this, that I couldn't be a social worker. I couldn't be a residential social worker. I couldn't be a social worker, social worker. I couldn't do it. I haven't the skills. I haven't the emotional capacity. Uh, I would want to do everything and not be able to do it and therefore have a nervous breakdown. You know, the fact is, is that we need you on the front line. You know, we need you there and we need you making mistakes because families make mistakes. You know, mums and dads make mistakes all the time. You know, why can't social workers make mistakes like mums and dads make mistakes? You know, etc., etc. So uh, my answer to your question is our entire community needs to be the advocate for the child in care. And, and the child in care, I mean, should not be their own advocate. But, I mean, there's so much to learn from the idea of community villages. Yeah. So. Everybody in the community is responsible for the children in the community. It, 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 I've got to say, in the communities, the Celtic, I'm, I, you know, uh, I yeah, you know, diasporas. You know, they've come to Scotland. Yeah, yeah. They come to Scotland. Like I am Scottish by blood because X Y Z, and I own this bit of narrative. I don't. I'd rather not have that bit. I don't. I don't want to talk about that bit. But I'd like this bit. Yeah. And then you get yeah. further, further diaspora outside. So they, they, they like, diaspora tend to like shiny things with Scotland written on. Oh, shiny things. You know, we're, the same in e- we're the same when we go to Ethiopia. You know, it's, I'm the Ethiopian diaspora in many ways. And, you, and I have the joke with Ethiopians when I do gigs over them. Like, shiny things with Ethiopia written upon it. Must have one. Look, Ethiopia food. Must eat all time while here. You know, uh, um, I, I went to eat a friend, Indian friend's place in, uh, in Delhi once, an advertising guy, and he cooked, no, his wife cooked, or they cooked, English food. I wanted Indian food. Sorry, I'm just talking about the, the complexity of diaspora and the complexity of what you expect cultures to be. Uh, and I'm totally, no, I've not lost my, my, my question. My point, the, the answer to the question is, is that um, we, we, we need to be the advocates for all children in care and, uh, and that children in care have the right to be uh, anything that they want to aspire to be. They have a right to their aspirations. And it's brilliant that your Nicola Sturgeon spoke of children care in the way that she did and that's what I was trying to say to you my grandfather was Duncan Munro I spent all of my childhood in the Highlands 
um, and he was the outpost who went to Ashton in Makerfield and married, because of the war, married somebody from Wigan, and he loved me to bits. And um, I spent a lot of time at his cottage in Loch Inver, and I'm published by the number one Scottish publishing house. I don't know whether it's number one's the right thing to say, actually, <laughs> but it's, it's Canongate Books, just there on that high street. It's amazing how life is. And I've taken their books where? Where have I performed? Where have I performed in the National Theatre with my sister in the front row? My mother went on to marry the Vice Minister to Finance under the Emperor Haile Selassie. My father was a pilot for Ethiopian Airlines and he flew Haile Selassie. And he died in 1974 in a plane crash. And there is a photograph of my father online with his Ethiopian Airlines suit on and on his finger is a ring. I'd published two books by the time I found my father in 1995. It's in a documentary called Internal Flight. Uh, by that time I found him, um, I published two books, and one of them had a quote from Bob Marley in it. Uh, um, I, I wrote the introduction for Bob Marley's musical in the West End, and I was managed at one point by Bob Marley's manager, Suzette Newman, who now manages uh, Baba Marl. On my father's finger in 1971 is the exact same ring that Bob Marley has on his finger. Uh, it was given to my father from the Emperor Haile Selassie for co-piloting him on Ethiopian Airlines. You can see that ring if you Google my father's name online. What I'm trying to say is that I am not Ethiopian and I am not Scottish, but I have incredible links with those places. I am... Unfortunately, I fit into that diaspora kind of animal, and, and yet I don't. Yet I am of those places. Um, I have nobody, and I have everybody. And I think that, like any child in care, uh, in having my family and finding what's valuable about family, even though I have not been able to benefit from that value, for that reason feel totally blessed. I think at that point we'll, we'll draw this evening to a close. I feel we could stay here for, for so much longer listening to you. I think it's absolutely clear that you have everybody in this room. Thank you for, an, I think, an unforgettable evening. Yeah, thanks. Will you take a photograph as well? So that, so that I can uh, have this memory and tweet it to me. Because I'm with the presiding officer of Scottish <laughs> Parliament! We, we, we will do that, but can okay, I um, just thank everyone for taking part, for being here, for your questions, for contributions, for listening. Um, it's just been absolutely fabulous. Thank you so much. Thank our partners, Who Cares Scotland, but of course, mm. most of all, thank Lem Sissi for giving up his evening and for giving up his time and for sharing his story with us. Thank you so much. Lem will stay and sign yeah, well, um, yeah. any books that you might have and also you may like to know that he is appearing at the Edinburgh International Book Festival tomorrow reading from his debut children's book Don't Ask the Dragon. Oh, yeah. This is the final event in this year's inter international yeah. <laughs> festival of politics. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you all again for taking part and I very much look forward to welcoming you back next year. Thank you. Take care. Thanks,